Hey, hey, it's Damon, and I'm coming back for season 13 of the Who Am I Really podcast. Last season in the spring, the show crossed 200 episodes, and the work continues to share adoptee stories from across the U.S. and around the world. So I want to share two things with you, one good and one not so good. I'll start with the not so good one. Recently, I had a negative experience that I debated whether I would share with you. I kind of feel it deserves a little attention so you understand some of what podcast hosts like me experience doing this work. On July 23rd, I got an email from the family member of one of my guests. The person was upset with their adopted siblings episode and decided they had to say something. Referring to the guest's episode, he said, quote, I'm requesting it to be brought down due to libel, defamation, and false statements and claims. Seeing as how you did not fact check with anything, I'm assuming the truth and facts weren't necessarily as important as creating an exciting episode for views and revenue. If you have any questions, feel free to follow up, close quote. He closed by detailing that this is being sent on July 24th, 2023. I'll admit, I was a little taken aback. I don't usually get this kind of negative interaction, but I know these feelings are out there. I make it a practice not to respond to things like this immediately. When we respond immediately, in a highly emotional state, we end up replying in anger. Instead of thinking through what the other person is trying to convey, sometimes we don't even reply intelligently, as we might have if we had waited. The old adage that haste makes waste applies to emotional responses, too. When I returned to type a reply, I read the message again. Here's what I said in response. Quote, Unfortunately, the story that was told on the Who Am I Really podcast was hers to tell. The podcast is focused on highlighting adoptee journeys as told by the person who lived it. I do not silence other adopted people's stories at the request of another person. I can only withdraw a published episode at the explicit written request of the episode guest. If you would like the episode to be withdrawn, please ask the guest to send me a written request to do so themselves. Otherwise, I cannot honor your request. Finally, since you mentioned fact-checking, the date of your email was Sunday, July 23rd, not Monday, July 24th. Close quote. I was feeling pretty good about my reply, then I got a notification that he tried to leave a negative comment in other places. I rolled my eyes and deleted his input. I'm not interested. My goal here is to listen to and believe the stories of adopted people and to share them with what I trust is their desire to honestly recount their lived experience in adoption. If any family member, community member, friend, or foe of any of my guests has a problem with the story they shared, that person needs to take it up with the guest. Do not bring it here to me. I created this safe space for my fellow adoptees, and I will protect it. If you're embarrassed about the story an adoptee told about your family, perhaps you need to reevaluate how you treated the adoptee in the first place. Trust me, the adoptee would not come here to Who Am I Really to tell a story that offends you if you didn't give them an offensive story to tell. Think about that. Now, on a more positive note, I've told you before, I read all of the comments on the podcast, and I was so excited to see new comments on the show recently. You might not realize it, but those positive comments are truly inspirational for me. They remind me that people are not only listening, 
but being touched, impacted, supported, and validated by the stories of the guests. Some folks have said that they are not adoptees themselves, but they are learning about the adoption experience. So thank you to every guest who bravely opens up their life for others to hear. And thanks to everyone who comments on the show. While I'm giving thanks, I have to recognize the Patreon supporters who help keep the show going. I want to thank my two latest supporters, Rachel and Judith. I also want to give another thanks to Erica, a former guest and a major supporter who deserves extra appreciation for her continued generosity. If you appreciate the Who Am I Really podcast and you want to support the show, you too can give a contribution you're comfortable with at patreon.com. One of the donation levels is less than your favorite drink at the local coffee shop, so if you'd like to buy me a cup of something warm to say thanks, go to patreon.com slash really and share a little. Okay, season three starts now. Here we go. I can't let myself get back into that, you know, so I just finally at that point in time, just like, okay, I can't ever hope or expect for change. And I'm in the emotional space where I'm not going to beg for anybody. I'm not going to say or do things to stir up anything. It's just, it is what it is. They're gone. I have to readjust. This is my new normal and I just move forward. Who am I? 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 This is Who Am I Really? A podcast about adoptees that have located and connected with their biological family members. I'm Damon Davis, and today you're going to meet Trish, who called me from Arlington, Texas. Open access to Trisha's adoption records provided her the information to find her birth mother, but just because she was found didn't mean she wanted to talk. When the woman's reluctance to meet Trish softened, they formed a relationship that lasted for years until suddenly it was over. Trish has tried to put the adoption reunion rejection behind her. She focuses more on trying to build a relationship with her birth father and hopes to put her training as an adoption-competent therapist to use for other adoptees. This is Trish's journey. Trish was born in Topeka, Kansas to a Mexican-American birth mother. Her adoptive parents are of Anglo descent, so Trish is a transracial adoptee. When she was born, Trish had some stomach issues, so she was in the hospital for three weeks before she was placed in foster care. About a month later, she went home with her adoptive parents. Trisha's older brother and sister were adopted before her, and they were adopted from the same family, biological siblings to each other, and also Mexican transracial adoptees. Trish said they grew up in a conservative religious home where their father was a pastor in the church. They read the Bible every day, and he would get upset if they weren't paying attention and following along with their reading. When their father pastored the church, Trisha's adoptive mother played piano for the congregation. Trish said she was always by her mother's side in their home. My mom was a stay-at-home mom. And, you know, my brother and sister, when they were adopted, they had already been through some, you know, pretty significant trauma and moves. And 
things like that. So they, you know, they had a different, a little bit different life. My, my sister had a lot of, you know, mental health issues, even at a very young age. And, you know, there was, there was times that, you know, she would threaten us, you know, to hurt us and things like that. And it was kind of scary. And, you know, my brother, he was, he was loving, he was a good guy, but he, when he was, like 12, he started, you know, using drinking and using drugs. And so my sister really like was not able to stay in our home. I don't recall, like maybe, you know, I was like 10 or 11 when she left. And then my brother, he left home when he was 16. So I kind of feel like, you know, I was raised a little bit as a, as a, like an only child in a certain in a certain extent, I felt like my parents really bonded maybe more with me, and you know I felt like I was kind of favored, but I was a pleaser. That was me. I was the please and accommodate the the parents and my brother and sister. They were the opposite. They were more like the rebels and acting out and things like that. You know. So then you know I I grew up in a a town that was kind of like transitioning from r- rural to suburban. And so it was like 95% white, you know, and I had a few friends, but I mean, I think I could feel, you know, that there wasn't, I don't, I wouldn't say that people were ever mean to me. There were a couple things that, you know, maybe that was said, but I really didn't feel like I totally fit in either, you know? Mm-hmm. So you are in this town that is 95% white, you are three Mexican children. What was it like for you to be such a severe minority and sort of have the moniker of being an adoptee hanging over you as well? That's a good question. You know, I I never felt called out, so to say, speak like as being an adoptee. You know, I just I felt like I had a hard time, you know, making friends. I didn't know if it was because of myself, like if I was, you know, that was I shy, did people not like me, you know, kind of, I had, it's kind of sad, but I had a birthday party one time, you know, and, and no one showed up and like my mom drove around and, you know, went to a few of the people that we invited their homes. And, you know, it's just like, it was like super embarrassing, you know, I mean, you know, like my mom couldn't, she, she didn't know. She was kind of unaware of, of those things, you know. So, yeah, I grew up in a in a town that's really kind of nationally known. I mean, as far as, like, they're, they were the last place in, I think, Texas, maybe even more, to, to integrate, you know, and, and they were, you know, they had, it was really bad. They, they had, there was a really big racism issue, but, you know, I didn't. I didn't feel hostility. I just felt aloneness. Trisha's older siblings were far more rebellious than she was. The children had moved around quite a bit before settling in their family. Trish suspects some abuse in her sister's past because she acted out in ways that suggested past trauma. The young woman became threatening, ran away frequently, and was sent to a state mental health facility to try to help her. Eventually, against their parents' wishes, the young lady left home for good. Unfortunately, their brother, a good guy by Trisha's account, started using drugs at their home, got into confrontations with their mom, and also left their family, choosing to live with another family of Mexican origin. 
For Trish, she said she and her parents were at the church whenever its doors were open for anything. She developed a lot of friends from church that she's still friends with today. Trish said she wasn't into the church attendance as much as she was into the friends she had made by going to church. Given all that Trish had witnessed with her adoptive siblings, I asked how she got along with her adoptive parents. That's a good question, too. You know, I just, I feel like, you know, being alone in a hospital when you're an infant, you know, that because I'm a, I'm a trauma therapist now. And so like, I look back at this stuff and kind of put the pieces together, but I was super attached to my adopted mom and we still have a close relationship. So I just clung on to her. My dad was really good to me. You know, he always looked out for me, cared for me. I wouldn't say that we had like a super close relationship, you know, where I just like was a daddy's girl. I never felt like I was a daddy's girl, but I was definitely, you know, my mom was like kind of my world. And I would, you know, I guess because of like separation and loss issues, you know, I, I would always worry, like, what would happen if something happened to my mom? What would happen to me? Like, I, I, you know, I couldn't even imagine life, like, without her and things like that. But, you know, as I grew older, too, there were a couple incidents where she had said some things. And, you know, like, I, I don't even know why. It was just, like, really kind of hurtful things, you know. And so I'm just like, wow, this is kind of I don't know how to handle this, you know, and it really kind of broke me. Like, I'll give you an example. Like, since they were super religious and everything and are, you know, my mom at one time, I said, I'm, hey, I'm going to move in with one of these kids from um, church, the youth group. But it was a it was a boy. And I said, hey, you know, we're going to go to school and we're just going to move in together like as roommates. And she's like, my mom's like, if you do that, I will disown you, you know, and I mean, I literally, and I'm probably like, maybe 19 at the time, I literally like, fell to my knees, like I was crying, I was sobbing, you know, and I did not know at the time why I had such a reaction like that. But you know, now I know it's because of the separation trauma and the feelings, you know, of abandonment and things like that. So can you explain a little bit more of why it was so traumatic for her? You were saying, if I heard you correctly, that you were moving out, right? Mm-hmm. And, but she said no. Tell me a little bit more about why that was so traumatic for you as a separation thing when it was a separation that you were choosing. Well, it was that I would be... What I know now is like I would lose her love Uh because I knew she loved me, you know, and I know she cared for me. But because of her religious convictions, it would appear immoral to move in with someone. And and I mean, we're talking about 1990s, you know, yeah, around that time. It's not like it's a long time ago. So, mm-hmm. I mean, even though that is, cause you know, I'm a little bit older now, but <laughs> yes, I mean, it, it shouldn't have, <laughs> right. It shouldn't have been, you know, like, I mean, I was kind of devastated and like for another kind of going back even further into earlier into my childhood, you know, there was one time where she was having a surgery and we stayed with my grandmother. And so my aunt and uncle, they brought us, back when she was ready for us to come back and stay and so 
this is in the 70s, right? And, and there was that song, like, tie a yellow ribbon around the old oak tree, like, if you still want me. And I was, like, six or seven years old, and I'm just, like, crying in this van, you know, and I didn't, I didn't understand why. And so there was this book that I would read over and over. It was called the Where the Red Fern Grows. And it's kind of a story about a boy and his two dogs that he loves. But the two dogs were, you know, one of them died and the other one mourned to death for the other dog. And so I would, I mean, I read that book probably 10 times and every time I would cry, but I was drawn to that. I was just drawn to it. And mm. so I think that as you know, even though as a kid and then moving into a, a teenager, then a young adult, like there were a lot of emotions that I felt and express, you know, like there was like a, a expression of them, like through crying, but I, I had no understanding of what that, that was linked to adoption. Trish is a self-confessed Oprah lover. Even when she was a teenager, Trish loved Oprah's shows, which would occasionally feature a family reunification. They were positive experiences where people cried with joy to finally see touch and get to know their long-lost relative. When Trish was 28 years old, she found out the state of Kansas offered access to open adoption records with original birth certificates for a nominal fee. She received her records quickly, so she was ready to locate her birth mother. I had her name, so like I called this very small town that she grew up in. I called the high school and I said, hey, can you send me a picture, a, a yearbook of this person, and they did, you know, so like for the first time ever, I got to see what she looked like, and then in the record, it had her siblings, had their names, and one of her older sisters was married, and so she was married to this Swedish man who had a very distinct last name, like I've never heard of it before, so what happened in the state of Kansas, what they do, at least at that time, is when they send the adoptee the record, they give the birth mom, they send her a letter saying, you know, this this person is looking for you. Do you want to make contact? And so then I received a letter, you know, probably within like two months or so saying, you know, we're sorry, but she's not ready to meet you at this time. Mm. So I'm like, okay, you know, I kind of held on to that for a little while. And, you know, I'm just kind of curious, like I think a lot of people are. And so I ended up finding the name of my aunt in a phone book or a Google search really easily. And so I just called her and I explained to her, you know, my birth aunt, who I am and what I'm doing. And she knew exactly who I was. And she was super sweet and super kind. And, you know, she's like, I'm going to talk to my sister, you know. And so then I called her back maybe like a, a month later. And she's like, I'm so sorry. You know, she just she doesn't want to meet, you know, and she said that people should just leave the past in the past, you know. Mm. So, yeah, I, I had a little, you know, moment at that time, but it wasn't, you know, it's like I, I never knew her or anything like that. A year passed. Then Trish drafted the letter that so many adoptees pen. The classic plea highlighting that she didn't want to interfere with her birth mother's life, that she didn't want to hurt the woman's family and that she held no ill will toward her birth mother. On Trisha's next birthday, her birth mother sent her a card, simply signing it with only her name. But that meaningful correspondence opened the door for the women to talk. 
Trish took a moment to step back for a moment to share that before her direct maternal connection, she had been face-to-face with her maternal great-uncle. Keep in mind, Trisha's adoptive mother is from Kansas, so their family would go back periodically for family reunions. One year during their reunion trek, Trish told her husband that she wanted to take a trip up to Topeka to have a look around. What she discovered was the small town only had two people with the last name she was looking for. And so I just happened to say, you know, hey, let's just drive by this house. And so we did. And, and, you know, I just let my curiosity get the best of me. And I'm like, hey, just go talk to them, you know. Wow. And so, yeah, I ended up like it was my it was my great uncle and his wife. So it was my birth mom's uncle. And I mean, Damon, it was just like the sweetest, like they were the sweetest, kindest people. And they opened their arms to me. It was like one of the best days of my life Mm -hmm. getting to meet them, you know. (laughs) But then, you know, they had a son and he started telling people in her family. And that definitely didn't make her very happy. Fast forwarding again. Trish and her birth mother started talking, so, of course, Trish was curious about her birth father's name, but the woman would not tell. She recounted the story of the man drinking, then getting physical with her during their rough relationship. Trish's birth mother decided she was not going to raise her unborn child under those circumstances. So he wanted to marry her and ask her to marry him, She just chose not to. And so then she chose adoption. And so back now to the current time, this is a big thing too. Like we, the year that we met, the very first time we met, like a month and a half before my husband and I split up. Mm. And so I was just want to tell folks, it's probably not a good idea to meet your birth parents for the first time when you're going through a relationship crisis because my emotions were just everywhere. You know, like I want, I want to be 100% into this reunion, but at the same time, you know, I can't be because of all this other stuff going on. But, you know, when she said she was ready to meet, I wanted to go. I mean, just looking back, you know, we all say, I wish I knew now, you know, knew then what I know now. And, you know, to kind of have some direction and guidance in that reunification process and things like that. So you were, I want to go back for a minute because you were saying that you don't recommend to people that they go into reunion at a time that they're in basically an, another personal crisis. In their life. Yes. However, you've also said that your biological mother had kept you at bay for the longest time, didn't want to meet Mm -hmm. and was sending that message through other people. So Mm -hmm. when she said, I think I want to meet her, like that had to have been a powerful moment for you that you, one, couldn't deny. And two, it probably didn't even matter what you were going through like this was the thing you were waiting for so like the earth could have been like crumbling around you and if she said i want to meet you you would have run right through all of it right i mean possibly i mean sometimes i'll look back and like did i push it because i'm seeing like okay i have my husband and his family you know and i'm losing them all And it was almost like a fear, you know, it was a fear reaction. And I 
do think that, you know, when I would, me and my birth mother would talk, we'd communicate and, you know, it's like, man, you know, I'm losing my family and, you know, kind of like, I really want to meet you. So like, yes, she agreed, but I, I almost feel like maybe I, I acted on it too quickly because, you know, I just was like, I was feeling such loss at the time and I, and I needed to feel like I had a family because like, even, you know, like I said, with my adoptive parents, like I felt close to them, but it was like, they were really like the only family I felt like I had because I did not have relationship with my brother and sister, you know, mm -hmm. as, as a young adults and things. Yeah. And so I was just like trying to cling on to something. And yeah. It, I, I hear what you're mm -hmm. saying, but I'm, I still, part of me disagrees because okay. when, and I mean, you know, we can, this is your story. So I could be sure. very wrong. You know how you feel. I'm just talking about it from what I'm thinking about from the outside. So just Absolutely. I'm Go thinking ahead. about it from the perspective of just the reunion. You've attempted to find this woman. You found her pretty easily. And mm -hmm. you've reached out and said, I'd like to know you. And you've sort of convinced her, like, I'm not a bad person. And this could, you right. know, this could be something worth exploring. And, right. you know, having been kept at bay and pushed away and denied, when someone finally turns the corner and accepts you, like, mm -hmm. I, I can't see how you would have denied that, regardless of what timing it had in your life. And because you had yeah. waited so long, I could see why you feel like maybe you jumped the gun, but I don't think you did because... The timing was right then, like, oh, this is the thing I've been waiting for. Let me hop on it, right? I don't, I don't feel right. Like you that it. makes sense. That makes sense. And and she was open to it. You know, she was coming from Topeka. I was coming from DFW. So we met in Oklahoma City, and I took a, a best girlfriend with me, a close friend, and she brought her boyfriend at the time and my half brother, my youngest half brother. And, you know, we met in this hotel room and I mean, she, they had flowers for me and she had this, you know, a bracelet with a charm that said family. And, hmm. you know, it was, it was really, she, she cried at the time, you know, I mean, my emotions were so shut down that, you know, I, I just, I probably did not show as, as much emotion as, you know, she might've thought I, or expected or wanted or hoped for one of those, but, you know, I was just going through a lot, but it was a very nice reunion. It really was. That's really amazing. Now, so mm -hmm. did you guys hug? Oh yeah, we did, you know, and then like, we were like, okay, let's go to dinner, you know, and we're all going, walking around Oklahoma city. And then, you know, we went to dinner and, you know, it was just a lot. It was a lot to take in. And thankfully, her her boyfriend at the time who became her husband and then my my best friend, like they kept the conversation going because I think she and I were both in this just like, wow, what what is happening here? You know, <laughs> I know the, these reunion moments are this time in your life when it just feels like everything else has stopped and you're just looking going, I cannot believe this is happening. It's so crazy. Exactly. Did you mm -hmm. see, do you guys look alike at all? Did you see elements of yourself in her or vice versa? Mm -hmm. What What did you discover? Absolutely. Yeah, we really, we do. And I mean, there's some differences, but you know, 
like seeing her, you know, it's the first time I ever saw anyone who looked like me, you know, because like on my adopted dad's side, they're like German and Irish and on my mom, they're like my adopted mom, they're like Swedish and all and something else, but Irish probably in English. So yeah, so all my cousins, aunts, you know, blue eye, blonde hair, and here I am, like even this darker skin, Hispanic, you know, girl, and with big brown eyes. But I, you know, I never looked at any, never had anyone who looked like me. Not even my my siblings really. My adopted siblings didn't look a whole lot like me. So it was pretty amazing, you know. And even this first visit with this great uncle, there was a little granddaughter there and she's like I feel like I've seen you somewhere before you know she's probably like 10 at the time and I'm just like wow you know because she had seen my birth mom so I guess she thought we did look pretty much alike oh interesting oh that's really cool huh (laughs) yeah right Trisha's reunion with her birth mother happened in 2005 they continued to develop their relationship with periodic visits and more regular correspondence Trish visited her birth mother's home and stayed a few days, and her mother was feeling like their reunion was a good thing. She had been reluctant. You know, she had been feeling shame about herself, and she really didn't want people to know what she thought she had done wrong. And so a lot of times it was a secret. And that kind of, there was kind of an underlying secret, the entire, you know, relationship she did introduce me to like my grandmother and my aunts and my cousins and, you know, but for instance, like four years into knowing her, she and her boyfriend, they, they married. And so she said, Patricia, I really want you to come, you know, but I'm just nervous and I'm, I'm trying to do the right thing, but you know, you pray for me and things like that because I just don't know how my best friends or, you know, my colleagues or, you know, even other some other family members will, I don't want to, you know, have to explain that to them. And so when, you know, like I said, it was four years into it. And so then the wedding came and went, you know, we never were invited. And then she sent me pictures afterwards of, you know, her and my brothers. And, you know, it was just another kind of like another I wouldn't say it was a sting. It was kind of more like a punch, like, but not, you know, not horrible. Like, Cause I was ready to forgive her because, or not even forgive, but just like let it go because I just really wanted that relationship with them. Wow. That's wow. So the secrecy of your existence prevented you from being invited to her wedding. Did you have this feeling, which a lot of people have, which is, Hey, that was water under the bridge. Like, I kind of, I don't deserve to be a secret. I'm here. What was your sense of her desire well, to maintain secrecy? I didn't like it. It did not feel good. You know, it just like there's just this thing. It just does not feel good. But you know, even from a young age, like with my adoptive parents, I'm a pleaser. I will take care of you mm-hmm. in order for me to feel that I have a connection and that I'm not alone in this world, you know, so I'll bend over backwards. And I feel like that's what I did, you know, and she was always like reluctant. I was always the encourager, you know, just and and scared. Like she, she seemed like, you know, even though she is a grown woman, you know, she seemed scared. Like she was stuck back at that age of 19 Mm -hmm. when, you know, she let me go. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 
I think that happens a lot with birth mothers. And I don't know this factually, mm-hmm. but I suspect that there is definitely sort of an anchor back in her history for that traumatic time in her life for either the circumstances that she got pregnant under, the relinquishment of like the the process of carrying a child and then not actually raising that child and relinquishing or placing the child or the Mm -hmm. combination of all of those things. I mean, think about like, like just even simple stuff. You can hear a song from when you were a teenager and it can transport you back to those times in your life. And that's just music. Imagine if a baby that you gave birth to is suddenly an adult standing before you and has come back like that's going to be way deeper than a song, and it is going to transport you all the way back to that entire experience of when you got pregnant to the relinquishment and the aftermath. It's it's yeah, a big 100%. deal. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Wow. It really is. And that's the thing, too, is, you know, I was kind of preparing for this. I'm kind of skipping ahead, but, you know, because I did end up meeting my my birth dad and, and all his family, you know, and, and looking back as adoptees, we seek this relationship, you know, and, and we do seek these out for different reasons, you know, uh, there is that, that connection that we have, a biological connection that I believe draws us all to that yearning to know or to be connected back, but, you know, we do affect a lot of people's lives. And I know, you know, our community, the adoptee community, have a lot of different, you know, thoughts on that. Well, like with my dad, I think he told my oldest brother when he was like 18. So it wasn't, it wasn't a secret, but at the same time, like my birth dad had told his wife, you know, and, but it's hard, you know, I didn't realize how hard it is for these people like to, it's one thing to know, and then it's another thing for this person to show up on their doorstep. And I mean, they invited me and my daughter, but it's still, you know, I just talked to my half brother on my dad's side, like last week, he, they live in California, but he was here in town. And, you know, I said, Hey, listen, you know, tell me what it was like for you, you know? And, and he's like, well, you know, my mom and my, and our other brother you know like they were skeptical and they they didn't really like it but you know they they wanted you know like they allowed you know they allowed it they didn't stop it or anything or didn't give my birth dad a hard time but you know it was it was hard on them and like even you know last week when he told me it was like still kind of like a little another little like gut punch or something because you know, it is easy for them to be accepting. We're so far away. We're 20 hours away. So, you know, I don't know if they would have, if the, you know, my dad's wife would have kept the relationship or allowed it to happen if we had lived closer. You mm. know, I feel like, I feel like he was in, he's in it, you know, but I was, like I said, I was a little shocked when my half brother told me this past weekend. Yeah. You know. I don't like the way that my brother and my mom handled these things, you know, and it was even like a couple of years ago, I was supposed to go visit mm-hmm. um, last summer even. And, you know, my dad was like, 
oh, well, you know, we're, we're putting down new flooring. And I'm like, oh, okay. You know, cause we were waiting for COVID to get over and things like that. And, mm-hmm. you know, and then my brother told me like this week, you know, well, it's just, he's put in the middle. And I didn't, you know, at the time I really didn't know it was like that. I didn't know that there was that from his wife, that there was something there that she really didn't feel comfortable with. Trish said the relationship with her birth father is the only relationship she still has because the connection to her birth mother eventually ended. She said he's a good guy. They talk every month or so, but he lives in California, a long way from her. Trish and her birth mother maintained a relationship for 11 years. She said it felt like dating because they were getting to know one another and they were bonding and their new relationship was growing. They talked on the phone, visited annually, and her birth mother sent Trish and her daughters presents. At the end of 2014, her half-brother, Trish's birth mother's youngest son, was getting married and he sent her a picture of his fiancé's engagement ring. He suggested they might get married in the fall of 2015, a wedding date that was kind of close to Trish's birthday in August. Based on how things went with her birth mother's wedding, Trish was unsure how things would unfold with this half-brother's wedding. I'm like waiting for my save the date card that I never received, you know, and, and so then my birth mom calls me on my birthday. And, oh, how you doing? Happy birthday. Everything's good. And so you know, I just like, okay, I got to do this. I said, hey, mom, are are we invited to the wedding? And she was like, oh, did you want to come? Oh. And I'm like, yeah. I'm like, well, you know, you've told me all this time we're family, you know. And I, so she's like, well, I'll talk to your brother, you know. He thought it was a, it's too far for you to drive, and even though we've driven it, you know. And so it was, you know, I just ended up saying, well, this really breaks my heart, you know. And she's like, I just can't talk right now. I just have all these things going on to prepare for the wedding. It's going to happen out on our at our place, and I'll call you back after the wedding. I said, okay. But that was the last time I ever heard from her. Really? The wedding, yeah. that was it. You never spoke with her that again? That was it. What? Never. Yeah, so, like, I I waited a while, and, you know, her, her husband, he's a great guy, you know, and we attached. And so, you know, he's like, hey, try to write her a letter, handwrite it, and just tell her how you feel, and just keep it between you two. Like, don't get any of the other family involved. And I said, okay. So I wrote her... And, and that was like 2018, early 2018, January. And I wrote her the letter and I never received a response. And then, yeah, I, I tried again in 2020 maybe and still no response. So, and at the time, the aunt that I first spoke to, you know, she was, she was like, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. You know, I don't know why she's doing this. And she's like, but I'll keep talking to you. You, you know, you're, you're my, you're my niece. I love you. You're my family. And so then, you know, we would talk like that, but at a certain point, like she began to kind of, you know, she would say, well, I, we just can't let her know what we're talking. And I'm like, I don't want to be a secret again, you know? Mm-hmm. And so, we had a, few, a couple conversations like that, and then we just, 
you know, it's just we kind of like we both knew it's what what's the point, you know, so we kind of just went our separate ways. That is tough. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. It really was. It was really tough. I think it hurt me more than when my husband and I split up and, you know, he he left for another person. So that's pretty terrible. But mm-hmm. it this felt worse. And, you know, it took me a long time to kind of pull myself together. It probably took me like five years to kind of get to a point where I can fully accept, you know what, not only has she told everyone in the family that cared about me because they were getting to know me. And even though I had 11 years with her, you know, I, I met her mother, my grandmother had met my, all my aunts and, you know, we had positive relationships again when you're nine hours away, but she told them all just to com- quit communicating with me. Mm. And so, you know, I have one cousin who is my age she's a year older she still communicates and my even my oldest half brother he'll send me things on social media every now and then you know he'll send a text happy birthday things like that which i think is pretty odd yeah yeah but you know you're a grown man you know like stand up you know i mean it's nice but at the same time it's like again you know like I don't know what to think about that. So, yeah, he's going behind her back to be in communication when you've basically said she's told everybody not to be. So I hear you on the stand up, but like he he's caught in the middle and Mm -hmm. and anybody else like your cousin, if they've been Mm -hmm. directed not to be in touch with you and they're defying Mm -hmm. that behind her back, like to me, that's pretty cool. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Like they're saying, yeah. listen, I don't really care what she thinks. I still want to be in touch with you. And I think I think that's pretty all right. Um, right. Now, let me just say, like, in, you know, it's been almost eight years. Like August is coming up. My birthday's coming up. And, you know, I probably heard from him, like, maybe in eight years, maybe five to eight times, yeah. you know. Yeah, I understand. So. It's not been that much and, yeah. you know, but it has been kind, you know, I mean, yeah. yeah. So I appreciate that, you know, it's just, which is worse, you know, like, yeah, just like it's being said and done or you just kind of open that back up when you, when you reach out, you know? Yeah. I hear what you're saying. I have this image in my head of like a bunch of people, like you're standing in an alley in the shadows and mm-hmm. and they're standing out under the streetlight watching, you know, they're enjoying life, but you're standing back mm-hmm. in this alley in the shadows. And every once in a while, he kind of reaches over his shoulder and just says, hey, you know, like, instead of the full invitation, like, why don't you come out here and be with us? I see what you're saying. I'm not sure why that image popped into my head, but I, yeah, I get what you're saying. The, the notion that he sort of wants to be in touch with you in secret doesn't really feel that good because the secret mm-hmm. keeps you in the shadows. Correct. Trish is a clinical social worker. She decided to take her pain and loss and turn it into something good. She was inspired by a book called Bittersweet by Susan Kane, which inspires people to turn their losses into creative outlets for positive impact. Trish got herself a therapist because, as you may have heard, Any good therapist has a good therapist. 
But in trying to find one, it was really hard to find an adopted, adoptive competent therapist. And Mm -hmm. so like, yeah, I went through a handful in Texas and everyone that I called was like booked, you know, and I couldn't get in. So, you know, I just kind of decided, well, this is, this is a need that is, is there that's something that I have the power to, to, to do something about, you know, so went and got, you know, certification in adoption therapy and, you know, just really honed, you know, my clinical skills. And so, you know, I'm not up and running fully, but I am hoping to like delve into that field. Cause like I said, you know, like, it took me it took me five years. It took me counseling. I went through EMDR, which I, I think was for me very beneficial in helping that to to process. And so yeah, so I feel like you know, I feel good about it, you know. I um every now and then, you know, she, she crosses my mind, you know. I went on a trip to Mexico and just a couple of months ago and you know, it just there was a couple triggers that kind of reminded me of her, you know, but I strongly believe because of EMDR, you know, where I would have in the past before EMDR, I would have like kind of dwelled on the loss and things, you know, for weeks, you know, maybe a month or two. But now after that, it's more like, oh, okay, yeah, I I know what this is, I acknowledge it, and it might stay with me instead of a month, it might stay with me for a day, you know, Mm -hmm. or even a a few hours, so I know EMDR doesn't work for everyone, but I feel like it really has helped me. So you've mentioned it a couple of times. For folks who don't understand what you're referring to, can you explain what EMDR is? Yeah, so it's a, it's a type of trauma therapy and that's also kind of been my part of getting prepared to like launch fully into adoption therapy is I was trained in that as well so it's called eye movement desensitization reprocessing and basically what it is it's it's some eye movements It started out with eye movements, but it's a bilateral stimulation. So you can do butterfly taps like yourself or you can there's like a light bar that a person's eyes can follow because the thought is it's just like a person as we go to sleep. When we get into that REM, that REM stage or phase, our brain is processing the daily information, it's processing a lot of information. And so that's what EMDR does. It's, it's similar to that because when we're in that REM sleep, if you look at someone in that in that phase, their eyes are kind of fluttering and moving. And so the belief is, is you're reprocessing information from like the way you held that information when something happened, like as a child, and then you're you're moving it from one part of the brain to the other that can sort it out and it's more logical and it's more you're able to to process from like maladaptive thoughts to adaptive thoughts through that process and it's mm-hmm. quick you know it's it's not like a long drawn out you know psychotherapy it it you know you can get a lot of work done and not that long of a time. So is it like taking 
I understand what you're saying about when you're in REM sleep and your eyes are darting back and forth. I've seen that with people when their their eyes are very sort of active when they're in a deep sleep. And mm-hmm. but what I think I hear you saying is you're recreating that rapid eye movement while you're awake and conscious and can think about traumas and reprogram yourself in a way that corresponds with your mind being in a REM sleep. Is that what kind of what it is? I think that pretty much is it. You know, when I was being taught this, you know, what we were told is, you know, our body is made to heal. So like if we, you know, fall down, we break our arm with the proper treatment, our body's going to heal. And so it's the same belief with our brain. Our brain wants to heal. It just has to go through a healing process, basically. And, and, you know, there's more to it. Like we have the emotional part of our brain. And so our memories are stuck in that emotional piece. And then we kind of have to move it through. I want to go back to one thing you said. You mentioned that adoption reunion rejection, that secondary rejection that you experienced with your biological mother was worse than the death Mm -hmm. of your dad and the loss of your husband. And Mm-hmm. I can absolutely see why that's the case. I mean, this is your husband is a relationship that you chose. You know, you mm-hmm. chose to love this man and it and it fell apart for whatever reasons. And right. your dad, while loving, was adoptive. And mm-hmm. like you've already alluded to the fact that you were in the hospital by yourself. So like some of the early attachments probably didn't happen. But this right. rejection that you're talking about with your biological mother, that is the, she's the reason you're here. She yes. is like the person you came from. Your life would not be what it is were it not for her life. So I could totally mm-hmm. see why being rejected by her would be so traumatic. I, I understand, but you sounded almost surprised that it impacted you so deeply when you said it. Maybe I just perceived that, but. I think, I mean, I think you're right. I mean, it, for 11 years, like, we never had conflict. It was always very sweet. It was, she's a good person, you know, and I am too. Like, none of us are hotheads or, you know, say things impulsively. It was just a, it was just a sweet relationship. And so for it to end so suddenly and then take away everything that I have longed for, and that's like family. Um yeah, that I guess I was very surprised that that happened. Yeah, yeah, I, I'm thinking about, do you know the story of Sisyphus, the guy who's punished to push the rock uphill? That, do you know that? Yes. You've seen that image? A little bit, yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yes. Like, he's on this hill with this like huge boulder he's pushing, and I feel like that is like a little bit of what your relationship was. You were trying so hard to get into her life you were pushing this rock uphill for a long time and it felt like you were making progress and then mm-hmm. the boulder just took over and just yeah bold that that image came to my mind as you were speaking the the notion that yeah, you were really trying to really foster a relationship and then in this 11th year it just fell apart and and she took mm-hmm. everything with her all of the relationships that you had developed that she had introduced you to gone yes absolutely Mm -hmm. how are you doing now i think i'm doing great you know like i said i mean it took me five years to kind of you know 
I had a big turn of the, you know, decade birthday in 2020. And it was kind of hard because it was five years after it, you know, and I thought, man, maybe she'll, maybe she'll contact me, you know, for that birthday. And she didn't. It was kind of like a little depressing, you know. And so, but I'm like, I can't let myself get back into that, you know. So I just finally at that point in time, just like, okay, I can't ever hope or expect for change. And I'm in the emotional space where I'm not going to beg for anybody. I'm not going to say or do things to stir up anything. It's just, it is what it is. They're gone. I have to readjust. This is my new normal. And I just move forward. But like I said a little bit before, I'm just glad that instead of taking that into, you know, I'm just using all of that to really like do my part in this world and hopefully, you know, help people like myself, you know, who've gone through difficult times to just just talk about it, just walk through it and, mm-hmm. and work it out. Yeah. Yeah. I love that, Trish. This is one of the things that we have to do is find the places where a need needs to be met and we are the person to meet that need, right? And you've identified mm-hmm. that you can offer adoption competent therapeutic services to people and and trauma therapy and i think that's really fantastic and like i've never heard it said before but i i totally get it that every good therapist has a therapist and that's who you're (laughs) gonna be so that's amazing yeah thank you thank you for saying that Mm -hmm. of course well trish it was really good to have you here i appreciate you opening up about the pain of your adoption reunion rejection and and i hope that you are able to take some of what you have built up in yourself from that pain and pass on strength to other people in your in your practice so i wish you the best of luck okay all right i appreciate it thanks so much of course you take care trish all the best you too bye-bye bye-bye Hey, it's me. Trisha's family started with three Mexican transracial adoptees, but her older siblings struggled to make their way after a traumatic start to their lives. Trish found her birth mother very easily using her open access to adoption records in the state of Kansas, but open access did not mean an open relationship. When Trish and her birth mother eventually connected, Trish remained a secret, and after two missed wedding invitations, her birth mother ceased contact. No one likes to be a secret, and when the person who gave you life doesn't want to bring you out of the shadows into the light, it hurts. But Trish said she has moved on the best way she knows how, trying to invest in her relationship with her birth father and supporting other adoptees with her training as an adoption-competent therapist. I loved hearing that she's working on being an adoption-competent therapist because there are so few out there. I hope more therapists will step into the adoption competency space because so many people are being mistreated and misdiagnosed due to a lack of understanding of adoption's impact on the person they're treating. I'm Damon Davis, and I hope you found something in Trisha's journey that inspired you, validates your feelings about wanting to search, or motivates you to have the strength along your journey to learn, who am I really? If you would like to share the story of your adoption journey and your attempt to connect with your biological family, please visit whoamireallypodcast.com slash share. You can follow me on Instagram at Damon L. Davis and follow the podcast at WAIReally. 
If you like the show, please take a moment to leave a five-star review in your podcast app or wherever you get your podcasts. Your ratings really do help others to find the podcast too. And if you haven't already, you can check out my story in my memoir, also called Who Am I Really? Available on Amazon, Kindle, and Audible. I hope you'll add my adoption journey to your reading list.